So we are going to uh, jump into our message now. And to start, I want to ask you, when you hear the word peace, what comes to mind for you? When you hear the word peace, what comes to mind for you? You might even want to close your eyes and just like, what do you picture when you hear the word peace? For many of us, we probably think about like tranquility and stillness and quiet. So we might think about peace from that perspective. For some of us, when we hear the word peace, we might think about it in the context of war, so the absence of war or a war coming to an end, and so peacetime kicking in. For some of us, given the chaos and frenzy of our lives, we might be in a place where it's like, I can't picture anything about what peace looks like. It's a long time since I have experienced peace. And today we want to take some time to explore what peace is all about. We're continuing our series that we've been doing through Lent this season leading up to Easter, where we're journeying with Jesus through some of the snapshots in the book of Luke uh, to be able to explore what Jesus' experiences were on the way to the cross, but specifically with that to talk about some of the practices that we see Jesus engaging in and what we can learn from that. And so, so far we've looked at the way of worship, We've looked at the way of compassion, and we've looked at the way of prayer. And as I said, this week we're going to spend some time looking at the way of peace. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 22. And if you have the Bible app on your phone, then you can go down the bottom right corner, more, and then events, and then Richmond, and you'll be able to find our teaching outline there if you want to take some notes as well, which we would encourage you to do. The context for this reading that we're looking at today follows on directly from uh, what we looked at last week and the events that we looked at last week. So uh, if you weren't around or if you've forgotten, last week we spent some time with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Janice helped us to enter into Jesus' experience where he was feeling so overwhelmed about everything that was happening, pouring his heart out to his heavenly Father, but also wrestling with these feelings of loneliness and isolation as his closest friends start to fall asleep on him as he's in this great moment of need. He feels very, very isolated and alone. And so we finished that reading last week with Jesus waking his disciples up. So, hey guys, wake up. They're here. And that's exactly where we pick things up today. But it's really important. I want you to hold on to Jesus's emotional state as we enter into what we're exploring today. So Luke chapter 22, verse 47. But even as Jesus said this, wake up guys, they're here, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I want you to try and put yourself into Jesus' shoes as this is all unfolding. So again, already be aware of Jesus' emotional state, what's been going on for him, the reality of what's ahead of him and what's about to happen for him, uh, and the stress that he's under causing him to literally sweat drops of blood. So the emotional torment that Jesus is experiencing in this moment with All of this reality about his disciples already starting in some ways to desert him and the sense of loneliness and isolation that he's feeling. And in the midst of that, one of your closest friends, someone who you've spent three years journeying with, walking with, talking with, sharing a whole bunch of memories with, comes to betray you and to do that with a kiss. Imagine how you'd be feeling if you were Jesus. What would you have said? How would you have reacted to Judas? I think for me, 
been like, are you kidding me, Judas? Like, really? <laughs> After all we've been through, this is what you're going to do? could almost imagine Jesus pushing him away. Like, how dare you come and betray me with a kiss, especially like this intimate sign of your love for me. And yet that's what you're doing as you betray me. Like, just can imagine Jesus pushing him away. Or even imagine him just staring him down until Judas ultimately looks away in shame. We could imagine those are all the ways that Jesus would respond and we would completely understand if he did. But what's staggering is that in Matthew's account of what unfolds here, in Matthew 26 verse 50, we have Jesus saying these words, My friend, go and do, go ahead and do what you have come for. That blows my mind. That Jesus is able to not just stiff arm Judas or not just stare him down, but Jesus to call him friend in the midst of everything that's happening. It's absolutely staggering. Well, we continue back in Luke's trans uh, version of the events. And in verse 49, we read that the disciples react in the way that we probably would have expected uh, Jesus to react. When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. The disciples jump into things, as we possibly would have if we were there, and they're like, Jesus, should we fight them? We've got some swords here. We're ready to rumble, Jesus. Just say the words, and we're ready to go. And one of the disciples, we're told in John that it's Peter, because of course it's Peter, jumps up and cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. I was thinking about that this week. Why is it that Peter chose to pick on the poor servant? Like, out of all of the people that Peter could have attacked, super courageous on Peter's behalf, not any of the soldiers, not any of the people that are armed, nah, let's get that guy, the little guy, <laughs> chops his ear off. However, we can also look at this, that at least Peter did something. All the rest of the disciples are kind of standing there, they're not sure what to do at all, so they're like, oh, what do we do, Jesus? But the question we want to wrestle with is, what did Jesus want them to do? Given this situation, this powder keg that was in front of them that was set to explode, what do we expect that Jesus is going to do? Is he going to grab one of the swords? Is he going to go and attack them, stand up for himself, take them out? As we think about this, it's important for us to rewind back just a little bit. So if we go back a few verses in Luke chapter 22, while Jesus is still with his disciples in the upper room before they've headed out, we read these verses uh, in 35 to 38. Jesus asked his disciples, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you didn't have money, a traveler's bag or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, they replied. But now he said, take your money and a traveller's bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Look, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. That's enough, Jesus said. So we need to rewind back even further again to uh, some earlier events where we remember that Jesus sent his disciples out to the surrounding towns and the surrounding villages to tell people the good news, to tell people about the kingdom, about what Jesus had come to do and to pray for people and to heal them and to set them free. And when Jesus sent them out, he told them not to take anything with them. He said, just go and rely purely on the generosity of other people. 
And so Jesus says, do you remember when I sent you guys out? Do you remember I told you to take nothing with you? How did that go? Did you lack for anything? And they're like, no, Jesus, we were completely looked after. When Jesus says all of that is now about to change, that they're going to move from experiencing generosity from the people around them to experiencing persecution. You're going to need to start taking care of yourselves because no one else is going to look at you positively given what's ahead and what's about to come. And then we have this very strange statement from Jesus where he seemingly tells them to go and buy a sword and get ready to rumble. This verse has been used to justify countless acts of violence by people who claim to be Jesus followers throughout history. And many of us would be very aware that there are some segments of the church in the US in particular who would use this verse as the key reason why they believe that it's their right to bear arms. This is the reason why we should be able to own a gun, the argument would go, because bad people are going to come and attack us. Jesus warned us about this, and so we need to make sure that we have something to defend ourselves with. This is the verse that people use to justify all of that. So we have to wrestle with this and say, is Jesus saying, gear up, get ready, guys? Clearly, that is the way that the disciples interpreted it, because they did grab their swords. And when Jesus said, okay, what's happening here? They were like, we got the swords, Jesus. Is now the time to attack? Peter in particular, who's like, yes, Jesus, let's go. Ready to go. But I want you to think about this a little bit further. If Jesus had been saying to his disciples, you need to arm yourselves to defend yourselves from what is about to come, why would he have said that two swords was enough? Because there was 11 of them. Remember, Jesus taken off at this place at this time already. So there's 11 of them. Two swords is probably not enough to defend 11 people, let alone the wider group of disciples that were following Jesus, let alone what was about to unfold with the early church. Jesus is like, well, you're equipped. You've got two swords. That's enough. You'll be ready to go. So it wouldn't seem that Jesus was saying that they needed to arm up. So how else could we interpret this? Particularly Jesus' words, that's enough. There's two ways that most scholars interpret this. First of all, Jesus is saying, that's enough as in, stop it. That's enough of that. You have completely missed the whole point of what I was trying to say. The argument for this interpretation comes from the idea that Jesus was actually saying that they needed to arm themselves with the sword of the Spirit, that they needed to arm themselves spiritually and get ready for what was coming. And so Jesus is like, you guys have missed what I was saying. I didn't mean literal swords. I meant spiritual swords. And so he says that's enough of that. I'm not sure how I feel about that one because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that Jesus would say go and sell your cloak so that you can buy a spiritual sword. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me, but that's one interpretation. Another interpretation, which is the one that I would lean to, mainly because it takes us into the journey of making sure that we look at the other verses around any verse that we look at, which is so crucial whenever we read the Bible, is that Jesus says this needs to happen in order to fulfill a prophecy. Jesus says, you need to have some swords so that a prophecy can be fulfilled. And what is the prophecy that needs to be fulfilled? Jesus said the prophecy was that he would be counted among the rebels. Other translations say the lawbreakers or the criminals. And so if we look at it that way, we can understand 
that what Jesus is saying is if you guys are holding onto a sword, you instantly are lawbreakers. It's the same as if we were carrying around a gun and got caught with it, then we're breaking the law. That's not something that you're allowed to do. In Jesus' time, it was the same. You weren't allowed to wander around with the sword tucked into your belt. That was breaking the law. And so Jesus says, by having two swords, you guys are lawbreakers. We're all rebels, and I'm counted amongst you. And so that prophecy is going to be fulfilled. I want to encourage you to take some time to reflect on that more this week. You might want to talk about that and argue about that more amongst yourselves. Uh, Call someone in the US and see what they think. (laughs) But the question is, what is our starting point? Always, what is our starting point? Do we start with the way of Jesus and looking at the entirety of who Jesus is and not just what Jesus says, but what Jesus shows us in his actions? Or do we start on a specific verse particularly a verse that we might be like, I would actually like to believe that. That would be really helpful for the way that I want to live my life. And then try and retrofit that back onto Jesus. This is such an important part of what we need to do and the work that we need to do and why it's important for us to do that with each other, not just on our own. Because as we think about the way of Jesus, we look at how Jesus specifically responded in this situation. So we come back to these events and we look at Luke 22 verse 51. Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. In some ways, Jesus is saying the same thing. That's enough. That's enough of that. No more of this. And he reaches out and touches the man's ear. We talked about the way of compassion a couple of weeks ago and just how staggering it is that Jesus can be present and aware of what's happening for other people given what he's going through. Remind yourself again what Jesus is going through, and yet he chooses in this moment to reach out to this poor servant who has had his ear cut off, grab it, attach it back on, and heal him. That is an incredible act of compassion given what Jesus is going through. But it's also a fantastic example of Jesus showing us the way of peace, bringing healing and restoration into a very heated situation rather than allowing it to escalate. But Jesus then takes that a little bit further in verses 52 and 53. Jesus then spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders who'd come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. Jesus points out that they could have come and arrested him at any point. They knew exactly where Jesus was. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing, where he was hanging out, who he was hanging out with. And so they could have come at any point and arrested him. But they choose to come and do it in this remote garden under a cover of darkness with this huge scene that no one gets to witness. Swords, clubs, treating Jesus like some dangerous revolutionary, which is exactly what they thought that he was. When I think about that this week, I will confess that the picture that came to mind for me is directly from Shrek, where Jesus says, grab your torch and pitchforks. (laughs) That's the picture that I had of this crowd coming to attack Jesus. Grab your torch and pitchforks. But Jesus really challenges this mob that has come to attack him. And he doesn't escalate things, but instead understands the wider perspective the wider view, knowing what the end outcome is going to be. But as Jesus embarks on the way of peace, he doesn't just lay down and surrender. 
He doesn't just roll over and say, do what you need to do. He shows them just how outrageous their behaviour is. He calls them out for what they're doing. You come at night when no one's around so that no one can see what it is that you're up to. No one can see the injustice. No one can see the lack of courage that you've got. He calls out the inappropriate and unjust behaviour for what it is. And this is really important for us to hold on to as we think about what the way of peace means. Because often when we think about the idea of being a peacemaker, we think about something very passive. We often link being a pacifist with being a pacifist. don't know whether you've ever thought this before, but a peacemaker is someone who just, like, don't cause a fuss. Just, like, calm everything down. Smooth things over, no matter what the cost is. And if needed, I'll take the brunt of all of it so that everything just calms back down and everything's fine again. That's what a peacemaker can be our perception of. It's one of the reasons why I prefer to use the word peace creator because it is far more proactive. It's choosing the path of non-violent resistance or even just non-aggressive resistance in the way that we respond to things. It's still standing up for justice. It's still standing up against power dynamics. It's still standing up for what's right, but not in a way that escalates things. We all know that violence just begets more violence. Aggression breeds more aggression. If someone responds to violence with more violence, it doesn't generally settle the situation down. It makes it worse. If someone responds to aggression with more aggression, it doesn't make things better. It makes things far worse. Something needs to happen to break the cycle, to stop the violence, to stop the aggression. That's what the way of peace looks like. And we also need to be realistic and challenge ourselves that one of the key things about the way of Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus is that we love the people around us. And it's fair to say it's very hard to love someone when you're physically harming them. You could probably say it's very hard to love someone when you're emotionally harming them or any other forms of harm as well. We have to be realistic that if our primary role as people who follow Jesus is to love people, then aggression and violence doesn't have any part of what we do. Jesus' most well-known example of what this all looks like comes from Matthew chapter 5, a passage that I'm sure is familiar to a lot of us. Verses 38 to 42, Jesus says, You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now again, this passage has often been used to say that being a peacemaker means that you're very, very passive. See, Jesus says here, don't resist an evil person. So don't push back, just calm everything down. And even these actions that Jesus is saying, first kind of look at it, seems like, oh, so if someone hits me, I'm supposed to let them hit me again. If someone sues me, I should just give them everything that I've got. If someone tells me to do something that's hard, I should just keep going until I'm ground into the dirt. We can see all of these as very passive actions. And well, that's what a peacemaker is supposed to be. But the word resist that's used here is actually a military term from Jesus' day that was in the context of two armies coming towards each other. And the actual word is to stand up with violence. 
So it is the idea that if an army comes and attacks you, then use the same level of violence to attack them back. Stand up that way. So that makes a lot of sense then, that Jesus would say, don't resist, don't stand up with violence equally against an evildoer, but instead he gives us these examples. Many of us would know that there is some very significant meaning behind these three examples that Jesus uses. They're actually exceptional examples of what it looks like to practice the way of peace, to practice the way of nonviolent resistance. The first example that Jesus gives is if someone slaps you on your right cheek, then let them slap you on your left cheek. So the understanding of this is that if someone slaps you on your right cheek, it probably means, because remember, you weren't allowed to be left-handed back in Jesus' day. So apologies to those of you who might be left-handed. No offence here. But back in Jesus' day, everyone was right-handed. And so, bang, you would give someone a backhand is the way that you would hit their right cheek. It's the only way you could hit their right cheek. It was a key way that masters often mistreated their slaves, was to give them a backhand. It was a complete sign of disrespect. If you really wanted to challenge someone and have a go at them, then you would give them a smack across the face that way, which would hit your left cheek. And so what Jesus is saying is, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, that is a sign that they don't respect you in any way. That is a sign of power dynamics. So call that out. Say, if you want to slap me, slap me on this side and at least do me the dignity of treating me like someone who's an equal. Don't treat me as someone lesser than you. The second example that Jesus gives is if someone sues you to take your shirt, then give him your coat as well. This, again, is Jesus calling out outrageous, ridiculous behaviour. Because if someone sues you to take your shirt and you don't have a shirt anymore, don't cover that up by putting a coat on the top of it. Give them your coat as well and say, you want me to walk around naked? Okay, (laughs) that's what I'm going to do. Calls out the injustice, calls out the power dynamics that are in place here. And then the third example of walking the extra mile, in Jesus' day, a soldier could at any point tap you on the shoulder and say, I'm a bit tired, it's a bit hot today, can you carry my pack to that next mile marker? And you didn't have a choice, you just had to do it. However, in order for this to not be abused, there were punishments that were in place if a soldier made someone take uh, their pack longer than a mile. Jesus knew this, so he says, if someone forces you to take their pack to the mile marker, then just keep going. Because who's that going to reflect back on? The soldier who's going to get in trouble for, again, abuse of power, for mistreating you and treating you like you're nothing. All of these are amazing examples that Jesus uses to say, don't react with violence, don't react with aggression, but don't do nothing either. Call out the injustice, call out the power dynamics that are in place, but do it in ways that are creative and draw attention to the most important thing that needs to be drawn attention to. Throughout history, we've seen lots and lots of people who have lived these same practices out. I'm sure for many of us, when we think about nonviolent resistance, the key person that comes to mind is Martin Luther King Jr., calling out injustice and power imbalance, particularly from a racial perspective, but doing it consistently using nonviolent means. Gandhi is fascinating because he's someone else that we would hold up as someone who showed what the way of peace looks like, the way of nonviolent resistance. And Gandhi said that he got that from Jesus. Gandhi actually said that he had a lot of respect for Jesus and thought that Jesus was pretty great. He just had trouble with the people who said they followed Jesus 
and didn't actually do that, which is interesting for us to reflect on as well. But Gandhi, who is someone who made huge cultural change, is someone who also used non-violent resistance in the way of Jesus. A very recent example is a movie that's out currently called Women Talking, a movie that was nominated for Best Picture and won Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars this week, which is a retelling of a set of events that happened in a Mennonite community in Bolivia where a number of women were treated to significant and horrendous abuse and came together to say, how do we respond to this in the way of non-violent resistance? How do we respond in a way that is in the way of Jesus, in the way of peace? When we look at Jesus' whole life and what Jesus modelled and the people who followed Jesus, we see that this is a key part of what it means to follow Jesus. And I never cease to be amazed at the choices that he makes, particularly in these final hours on his way to the cross. The number of times when Jesus had the opportunity to pick up a sword or to respond with violence, or to respond with aggression, and chose not to. It's absolutely staggering. We're going to see a couple more examples of that through the next couple of weeks, and it's also something that you'll explore in this week's Lent podcast, if you have a look at that. But today, as we've done every week through this series, we want to take some time to explore this from a practice perspective and to reflect on the situations that we find ourselves in or the situations that we're aware of and what it looks like to be able to respond in the way of peace rather than with violence or aggression. So today what we're going to do is to make origami cranes. So I want to say a big thank you to Tyson for finding the video for us to be able to uh, watch this. Really appreciate it. Um, And... Cranes are a beautiful symbol of peace. And so what you're going to do is to make a crane. The instructions are there. There'll be a video that'll be scrolling up on the screen as well. And um, what we want you to do as you make your crane is to think about a situation for you where you are aware of conflict. So that could be for you personally. That could be a situation that you're aware of collectively for a bunch of people or a global situation that you're aware of where there is conflict. I want to encourage you to write that situation down on your crane as you're making it. And we will let you know that we are going to be holding on to these. So if it is something that's personal, you might want to write it on the inside of the crane. Uh, That's totally fine. But write down one area that you're aware of where there is conflict at the moment. Then as you're making the crane, if you're able to do two things at once, we want you to try and then think about what a non-violent, non-aggressive response is to that situation. What are the different ways that we could respond in the way of Jesus based on whatever that situation of conflict is? And then, hopefully by this point, you're getting well into finishing your crane to be able to pray into that. And to pray, Jesus, help me to be a peace creator or help the people who are on the ground in that situation, if it's not something that you're personally involved in, to be peace creators. We then want you to leave our cranes here because, as Melinda said, this is going to be a part of what we're going to be using on Good Friday to explore everything that we've been through. So I want to encourage you, there's going to be some background music on, to come forward, make a crane, think of a conflict situation, think about what it looks like to respond to that, and then think about what it looks like to pray into that situation and then leave your crane here. So we're going to do this for a few minutes. 
We'll see how we go. We are going to uh, come back to sing one more song together. And so depending on how time is going, we may just press pause and get you to uh, sing that wherever we're at, and then you can continue to be able to finish your crane. Uh, But we want to take some time now to be able to make those and to reflect. And as I said, then we'll come back together in a few minutes' time. So what we might do, recognise that we, said we had no idea how long this would take, but I have my suspicions, given that that video was six minutes, I was like, well, I reckon we're going to need to go through that at least twice. <laughs> and uh, so what we're going to do is we are going to sing a, uh, a final song together, but you can do that wherever you are, so you don't need to go back to your seats, because uh, then once we finish the song, you can continue making your cranes or head out to grab coffee or whatever, um, but we're going to sing this together. Before we do that, let me just pray, and uh, yeah, then we'll sing this to finish this part of our gathering. Jesus, we are grateful not just for what you taught us, but for who you are in so many different ways. We're so grateful that we don't just have a set of teachings that we have to follow, but that we have a person to follow in you and a model to follow. And we're grateful that a lot of that does then help us in those situations where there are verses that don't really make sense to us or seem to be saying different to what we know of you, uh, that we can zoom out. And so we're really grateful for that. We're really grateful for the Bible that helps us to be able to encounter you and to discover uh, all that you wanted us to be able to discover. And so particularly this week, as we focus on the way of peace, our prayer is that you would help us to be peace creators, uh, that we can do that in small ways as we live our lives throughout this week. But as we zoom out and think about uh, the greater picture of all of the people who say that they follow you, uh, we can imagine what a world would look like if all of us chose to respond to situations of conflict in ways that are different to just using violence and aggression and how different everyone's experience might be across the world uh, if we all chose to lean into that. And so we pray that you would challenge us and inspire us about what that looks like in our lives, but that you would also help us to find ways uh, to encourage others to explore the way of peace as they live their lives as well. In your name we pray. Amen.